out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest, or even two. Because in this occasion, it's going to be two special guests. It is to do with a new book that has just been published called, well, the title, Marquee, the story of the world's greatest music venue. This is by Robert Sellers and Nick Pendleton. This has just come out and the publisher is Paradise Road. You can go to their website, paradiseroad.co.uk. It's an amazing publication, 320 pages, filled with black and white photographs, and much, much more. But anyway, this is the interview. Um, Robert Sellers is an author who's done lots of books. Nick is the son of the Marquee founder, Harold and Barbara Pendleton. And um, yes, not only did the club start in 1962, but also Harold began the Reading Rock Festival right up until he um, passed it over in 1992, I do believe, indeed. But you're going to find out all that information in this fascinating interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we start, and this is with Nick, by the way, um, a bit of a, a background to the Marquee Club. Anyway, Nick, it's over to you. Yeah, I mean, I guess obviously this is a personal story for me and in, in some ways a family story, but uh, hopefully it's a story for many other people because lots of people, whether they were going to the club or... Um, uh, indeed, the the garden party of the Marquee, which is the Reading Festival, or um, they've ever discovered a band or been there, been there when sort of a magic moment happened. That's that's a special time for all of us, isn't it? Because music is such a powerful thing. It puts us in a time and a place and sort of culture is what I guess makes life have some colour. So hopefully by uh, by documenting some of this history, it's allowing some other people to to relive their moments. And, and I don't know about... Um, about you, David, but actually I'm a bit of a music geek, but I'm always most interested in those documentaries about the early times when they discovered their sound, when they met band members and, and when they got signed. And it always seems to be skipped over quite a lot. And, and you just go on to the sort of, yes, we got really successful. We played all stadium tours and we had problems. And whereas actually a, a huge number of uh, artists, which we'll probably come on to when we get get into the interview actually had some of those former formative moments at the at the club so almost it felt like it was our mission to get that get that documented but as you as you rightly say it's also for me a, a personal story and obviously one I, I I was brought brought up with and you know spent a lot of time in Soho being babysat by uh John Anderson of Yes and uh going down and uh going into the the club and playing the Space Invaders machine before it opened and so yes a, a very interesting Yes. Well, as a, yes. Well, with with this particular club, it is kind of almost at the beginning of birth of rock and roll and pop, really, isn't it? Yeah. So up to then, you know, a bit of a history. It was kind of mostly jazz, wasn't it? And then we had those kind of famous events that happened in the fifties. Was it the Battle of Bru- Bouli, where they had this kind of the trad jazz people against modern jazz people having a bit of a fight at some middle class jazz event, which kind of um, makes us laugh now because when we see that little bit of footage of the BBC sort of complaining they had two microphones stolen, you know, you just think, God, times did change quite radically in the next ten years. But yes, well, that, up was to a, then... that was a formative. Uh, I mean, my dad always, my dad, my dad was a, a jazz fan, and he, he basically had a mission to try and popularize popularize jazz and blues in this country and you know it was seen as the devil's music because i guess anything that stakes takes on the status quo and um yeah so so ended up 
promoting the Chris Barber jazz band, who was, who was the first person that my dad met when he got off uh, the bus in London uh, in uh, 1948. Uh, and I guess it's it's interesting to think, you know, it's hard to transport ourselves back into that time where, uh, you know, you still had post-war austerity and uh, it was quite hard to buy any, buy any records and certainly... You know, when I was researching the book and obviously talking talking to my dad about this in the past, how hard it was just to book artists. All these venues, he had these watch committees where venues would stop blues musicians and jazz musicians playing. And uh, Chris and my dad fought really hard to get some of these, you know, iconic blues men, whether it's Howling Wolf or Muddy Waters, over to the UK. And and the musicians' union would fight tooth fight nails to stop them coming over yeah and and part part of that battle was as we said the beauty festival so um lord montague approached my dad who became pretty well known as a promoter and uh manager in that in that jazz world to uh to do the first uk open air festival really and right. uh at at Bewley. and this was um 1955 and basically said well harold you know I've, I've looked at the league table of uh stately homes and uh, i'm at number 10 i want to become number one in terms of revenue and I've got a good idea. Can you do a jazz festival for me? So dad said, well, mm, uh, you know, it's in England and we don't have a roof and it rains a lot. But OK, I'll give it I'll give it a go. Had the first one. And uh, then actually they they parted ways because actually dad saw that he wanted really for it to be a money making scheme rather than sort of purely to promote promote um, the music. So uh, and this is this is the roots of the Battle of Bewley because uh Five years later, dad and my mum were sitting watching it on, on BBC TV and it was effectively um, selling the rights to the BBC uh, that caused the problem because um, and about money making scheme, because there was only one stage and uh, the, the BBC film directors obviously designed it all to look great on TV, which meant that the poor audience were miles back, roped off. Uh, to allow all these swooping camera angles. And, uh, you know, the artistic director thought it would be great to have a stage that wasn't elevated and was was just a sort of merry-go-round. And as soon as as soon as the crowd understandably got a bit impatient and started pushing forward, you almost create an unstoppable momentum that just meant people spilled onto the stage. And it was, of course, all caught on, um, on film cameras. So... Uh, Jazz got a bad name. The festival got a, jazz, a bad name. My my, uh, my dad was invited back to try and fix it the next year. And he said, no, because now troublemakers will turn up the next year if they if they see that there's there's some problem there. So uh, he was on a mission to try and right that wrong. And that's what led to the, the Richmond festivals that morphed into Reading. Right. Still going strong. So, uh, yeah, yeah, Be- Bewley's a, a lesser known fact that's in the book and is part of our story. Yeah, well, absolutely. So were you sure, Dad, during, did he sort of take part in the Second World War? Was he sort of old enough to serve in the... Um, no, the no, he was, he was, he was, um, he was slightly too young. So born and bred up in, um, in Southport. What, what he did get is the advantage of being by a port in Liverpool. Some of these uh, illicit jazz and blues records were brought over in the docks. And so he got a chance to, to listen to them. Uh, and I guess that's where he started to get his um, his passion. Yes. Um, and and I guess be- because he he trained as a, a as an accountant, and um, I think one of the frustrations of his generation is that the, the I, I guess a bit like you know uh, all those um, women that actually got some jobs to do when the men were out of out of, out of war, um, the talented young people 
started to pick up the reins but as soon as the veterans came back from the war they sort of got all the all the jobs again so you were demoted or left twiddling your thumbs so I think dad got quite frustrated quite early and decided he'd try and make a career out of music and jazz which was a pretty brave move because there wasn't an industry in those days and uh pretty soon after coming into down to London with with a job in the city he gave it up and found himself queuing at a soup kitchen underneath Waterloo Bridge too proud to say that I'm not earning any money back at home but luckily it all turned out in the end yes the end. my god did he was he veering towards that world of being a bit of a beatnik as well and and reading Jack Kerouac and Ginsburg? no no he, he actually he he was a he was very much a traditional jazz and, and Dixieland jazz fan so he, he wasn't he wasn't a fan of the beatniks or or, or modern jazz but he was and this is really his smartness. He was smart enough to always give any sort of music a break. Um, and uh, I, I think he'd seen such prejudice when he was trying to promote the music he loved. that his ethos with both for the clubs and Reading was always to what's new, what's next, who's trying to get a get a get a voice and get an audience. So so he set it up very much to promote whatever whatever anyone was trying to uh, break through, rather than his own personal taste. And the marquee always was uh in a home to a number of different tribes sometimes at the at the same time so you had modern jazz and traditional jazz at the first marquee club and then later on you'd have um the new wave of heavy metal owning only one night with iron maiden and you'd get the punk and the sex pistols the the, the next night so i think that was one of the secrets of uh why it was so influential for those 30 years and it wasn't just one one tribe's meeting place yes because it's interesting often a club starts out with some sort of ethos i suppose cbgb's is one of those ones isn't it the country blues one and then yeah becomes famous with punk and norwich had the jackard club which was you know started out as a blues and jazz folk kind of a thing that tony and albert cooper sort of promoted but obviously it was kind of the the punk period that sort of really established it to be this iconic venue so it was interesting that you all started in a in a way your dad's is is kind of jazz and then it was kind of the birth of rock and roll and psychedelia that sort of puts it on the map and becomes famous for the the sort of more louder metal sounds that happened in the 70s and 80s well, it's almost, you know, it's a moment of time that you can't recreate, really. I mean, I guess I guess it's Halcyon period. I mean, of course, famously, the Stones played their first ever gig there, and it was the home of uh, Blues Incorporated, the first sort of rhythm and blues. Um, but that was in the old jazz club. So, But that was, that was um, you know, one of the milestone moments. But I guess the real sweet spot was when it moved to Wardour Street in the heart of Soho. And then for the next sort of five or six years, Soho... Um, and the club became almost the centre of the sort of musical universe because you had that melting pot of uh, of that late sixties experimentation where every every six months you had a new sound being created and quite often it was um, it was created at, at, at the marquee. So yeah, the swinging sixties. Sadly, there's a great T-shirt that I saw that that Robert and I put in a presentation that we we do that says. Um, you know, I might be old, but at least I got to see all the good bands, uh, and I guess. <laughs> You'll never get that amazing explosion of just change again. No, this is true. This is all very true. It's interesting because I did an interview once with Neil Oram, who was one of these playwrights and he did lots of interesting things. He started, a, I think, a bit of a jazz club in Soho during the late 50s, early 60s. But he he had problems with people like, I suppose, not the mafia, but, you know, the gangster land in, in sort of London at that point. Did your dad ever have to have issues with dodgy landlords or sort of dodgy sort of mafia types? 
Well, you know, in the middle of Soho, uh, ironically, as a kid, I never felt safer when you think, though, with all those uh, strip clubs and uh, your 24-hour society and, and uh, yeah, fam famous gangsters. I mean, I think the Flamingo down the road had more trouble. Uh, the, the key with the marquee is it actually closed quite early and actually amazingly didn't have a drinks license for uh, for quite a number of years. So so I guess it, you know, it closed at 11 o'clock. Um, the reason it didn't have a drinks license is nearly all the bars around it opposed the drinks license because they made so much money out of all the artists and uh, people going for a drink uh, before, and, before and afterwards. But uh, the club was the biggest seller of Coca-Cola, actually, in the whole of Soho, interestingly enough. And, yes. and the, first, the, first, the first trialer of Pizza Express pizzas because Peter Boizo was based around the corner. So uh, all sorts of quirky facts uh, that we can share like, like that. Well, yeah, no, because it closed early, it didn't have that much trouble. And um, Jack Barry, who was sort of the, the second uh, sort of well-known manager of the, of the club after, after John G used to, used to joke that um, there was a famous gangster in the, in the gangster community called Barry. And they always thought he was related to him. Uh, and he never, Never, never contradicted them from from that uh, that that thought. So maybe just Jack's surname helped as well. But yeah, we never really had that much uh, trouble from the from the gangsters. Yes, there you go. And Robert, the book. Sorry. Um, so how did when did the idea come about to to sort of want to document it? I must admit, it's been a brilliant period. I mean, you were said about Nick about the early years about being interested, and I have to say that I'm very geeky, so I love hearing all about the very sort of early period of anything like the band or an artist or a venue that starts and has that sort of zeitgeist period. So in the last five, 10 years, we've had a lot of books and documentaries made on the most smallest little things, bands that hardly lasted more than eight months in a ter in, in terms of a band called Rima Rima. And everyone's been writing their memoirs and finding their, their archives. So when did this, this kind of project begin, Robert? About six years ago, I think, wasn't it, Nick? When when I first came to you, um, it's been long in gestation and 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 a long period of writing it, researching it, and also finding a publisher. It took us a, uh, about three years to find a publisher as well, because as you say, there are the, all these very niche books, but but we found it quite difficult getting an, getting a publisher for it. Um, I, I tend to write books on film. Film is my main interest, really. You say you're a music geek. I'm a film geek. You know, I'm a film and TV geek. So most of my books are sort of uh, film books and um, biographies of film stars and stuff. Um, I think I've only did, I, I think I think um, a few years ago, I did a book on Radio 1, the history of Radio 1, which is sort of music related. So uh, Right. But, um, I, think, I think it must have been, because I'm always looking for things, um, always looking for for subjects but in popular culture and in the in the wider sphere of popular culture um always looking for ideas and, and and things that haven't been done um and also something that grabs my interest as well because i think if, if i'm enthused and interested in a subject then hopefully that comes across on the page to the reader as well yes um, and i think it must have been i do tend to instead of people having tea breaks i, I tend to have youtube breaks where i have <laughs> sort of 20 minutes <laughs> looking at stuff on YouTube, and I think it must have been um, something. Must have been like a little film, like a five-minute short film on the history of the Marquis. Right. And I think, like most lay lay people, I have a sort of a working knowledge of a basic knowledge of what the Marquis was. It's such an iconic name, isn't it? I think everybody with any sort of passing interest in music has heard of the Marquis. 
and we all know that the Who played there and the Hendrix played there and Bowie and all that. We we all we all sort of know it has an iconic uh, place in British music. But then I started digging a little bit deeper and and became fascinated with just the the the, the significance and the, the huge history behind it and the fact that nobody had written a book about it was which I thought was strange. Um, yes. Although I since found out that yeah, that I since found out that Nick was the family were always being approached um by people but it just never never happened and i years and years ago i wrote a book for omnibus press who are music publishers um and chris charlesworth was the editor there and he's got a little blog and he said that when he was the editor at omnibus he was a, a week didn't go by without somebody pitching a book on the marquee but again it, it just never happened so we were lucky in a way that nobody had um written about this before so i thought well i'll give it a go and i got in touch with nick and the family because i i think if, if it was worth doing it was worth doing properly so i needed to have the the it had to be an official authorized book you know there's no point in writing it uh, and sort of cutting and pasting interviews from from various music journals but i, I wanted to actually speak to the you know the people who actually created it um to give it a bit of authenticity and I got in touch with Nick and and the family and uh had many meetings with Harold and we sort of together you know we documented his life and he you know the wonderful I, I think back on those wonderful afternoons I had sitting down with Harold and just going through his life and um and he still had a wonderful dry sense of humor didn't he Nick <laughs> which was lovely and I think that comes through on the page as well um so that, that so it was it was a it was lovely because it's it's nice you know writing these books and enjoying the process you know because it's it's almost like not not doing a job isn't it you know it's not <laughs> people say you know going <laughs> nine to five and people hating their work we're lucky in a way that we we enjoy our work because we it, it's our obsession you know yes so, and, and you must have learned you really must have learned a lot about the history of music doing this i mean it's kind of interesting you mentioned about not having a book uh, book on the marquee before and there hasn't been mm. that many but in new york obviously cbgb's max's kansas city yeah. the mud club have yeah. all got books and it's all been beautifully documented and one thing about americans that i've realized because i've got a lot of them that people seem to they at least had one person if not two who just photographed endless gigs which at the time yeah. probably didn't look that amazing and you know everyone when something's happening you just take it for granted and then afterwards you think oh god i wish someone had photographed it and the uk never had those photographers that seemed to go to those places and capture well, I mean Mick Rock Mick Rock stands out doesn't he but I, I think he was a you know but you're right there, there wasn't a sort of a, a photo archivist who, who stayed who always sort of documented what was happening that that was something that we found wasn't it uh, when we were photo researching that there wasn't an awful lot of photographs photographic material and what there was was sort of owned by Getty and people like that who charged you know, phenomenal amounts of money for it. But there's some lovely stuff in the book. We've got some, yes. it's, it's nicely illustrated, I think. There's some well, nice the stuff other thing it. is that you've got this very iconic, uh, the advert, isn't it? The, the brand yes. is, is kind of quite brilliant because you've stuck to one idea, you know, one sort of identity and didn't ever change from it particularly. And it sort of, it does stand out. So you mean... Well, I think it's, you're talking about the Melody Maker ads, aren't you? Yes. We're interesting talking to because I talked to about oh, 60, 70 musicians who played you played at the marquee, and most of them talked about growing up, um, you know, as kids and as teenagers getting into music and starting bands. 
that they'd always get the Melody Maker and those Melody Maker marquee ads always stood out for them. And, and sort of their dream was um, one day our name would be on that Melody Maker ad, you know, so that was, you know, another, another. I mean, playing the marquee was for many reasons for, 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 for young and new bands, it was very important. But from that personal point of view as well, as well it was nice to uh, to see see like an actor seeing their seeing their name in lights outside a marquee a cinema marquee but for for many of these young musicians it was seeing their their name in the melody maker ad you know we've yes. made it kind of you have made it then haven't you and that, and that typeface yeah. that typeface was a <laughs> my, my dad actually designed that typeface because he was interested in print and graphics and we 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 um we had a a rival to melody maker called jazz news in the jazz days uh so uh yeah dad actually um, invented that logo and and typeface so uh, yeah that's another proud legacy so when did you when you said the the marquee changed location so where was it in the early the very early years before it sort of moved over so it was on oxford street um so yeah it was in on oxford street not not a million miles away um and ironically, given, you know, there's so many quotes, uh, there's a great one from Lemmy, you know, that the marquee was dirty and sticky and dark, uh, like just like any great rock and roll club should be. Ironically, the, the first version of the marquee was probably the swankiest jazz venue in, in, the, in the country. And uh, it was actually um, designed to look like a marquee, hence, hence the name, the marquee. It was actually had a Steinway piano, a sprung floor and um, stripes on the, on the wall because at the basement, it was the basement of the Academy cinema, which was, I guess the first, you know, fa famous um, uh, sort of art, art cinema um, that would, that would, would show sort of foreign and non-popular films. And uh, yeah, seven, seven very happy years there. So my, my dad was the bouncer or my mum was the, uh, was was on the on the box office and um yeah some amazing vent uh, ama amazing uh gigs that, that 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 were there including that rolling stones first gig and uh, many visiting american musicians and manfred mann and blues incorporated yardbirds but um yeah i'd got a uh a meeting with um the guy who owned the academy cinema who's the landlord and said i've got good news uh, good news for me, but bad news for you. And you know, my dad said, "Oh, what did it?" And he said, "Well, I've managed to buy the the kiosk, the uh, the kiosk that 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 takes up half the entranceway to the basement." Uh, my dad said, "Oh, yeah, congratulations, great." So, um, yeah, why why do I need to know? He said, "Well, that means I can actually widen the entrance, and I can set up another cinema downstairs." So I'm afraid, uh, and you've got six months notice, but you're you're out. Right. So you know, just when things were going brilliantly well and the festival had just kicked off and chris barber had had, had a, a huge hits in the states and uh we'd had that skiffle boom with rock island line that was that was released um by lonnie donegan through through the barber band so that was a, yeah it's always the way when you think you're really on the up suddenly up oh, okay we've got to find a new home for the marquee and uh luckily found we said found that place in 90 wardour street which was actually just all on one floor although it often felt like you're in a in a basement um and uh actually opened on friday the 13th which is my mum's favorite day and favorite number in 1964 and um they had a week to move everything and and luck luckily the academy didn't actually need any of the any of the stuff so actually it was almost a carbon copy of the old venue when the new venue 
opened and people couldn't believe it when they walked a week later from from Oxford Street to Wardle Street and they thought they were almost in the same place. Um, yes. Um, but Dad always says that jazz jazz died in that move. Uh, yes. And, you know, the first the first the first night had uh, Yardbirds playing at Long John Baldry. And uh, in fact, that famous Yardbirds album, Five Live Yardbirds, um, obviously with Eric Clapton, was recorded live there the second week that the the marquee opened in Wardle Street. And uh, yeah, I think from that time, it was a it was a it was a rock venue um, and and the jazz didn't move with it. No, no, this this is true. I sort of find that every three to five years, there's a sort of bit of a new musical chapter that starts. So any band who sort of lasts more than that period is doing quite well, because normally a band gets together, they have that 12 month honeymoon period, they get a single, you know, and in the old days, I mean, I'm an 80s kid, so it was John Peel getting a session you know, then doing their BBC moment with Dale Griffiths, then the first album, then the, you know, do all the little clubs around the country and then the second album and then by the third album, it's normally over. So I could imagine with the uh, the marquee, that was probably the same with jazz, really. There wasn't the next wave of youngish people coming through wanting to play jazz, but wanting to hear the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Who and obviously the Beatles. So when you moved in 19... 19- I, I quite like I quite like the, um, just, just to pick on that, I quite like the interge- intergenerational thing, because as Robert said, you know, people would be grow up watching the adverts and then want to play themselves. And, you know, it's nice to think that Eric Clapton was in the audience when he saw Blues Incorporated play and he went home and asked his grandparents can you buy me a guitar? And that, that's that's how he got a guitar. You know, you had Brian May that was inspired by um, Taste um, and, uh, you know, cornered Rory Gallagher and said, how do you get that amazing sound on your guitar? And Rory Gallagher was generous enough to say which sort of fuzzbox pedal he bought at Denmark Street. And Brian May went went round the next day and bought it and sort of defined the, the Queen sound. You know, you have as strange people as David Essex and Nick Drake were in the audience in those early days getting inspired by artists, you know, Genesis would regularly come up from uh, from from their public school boarding school to 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 see artists at the marquee, and that's why they always wanted to play there. You had a young Phil Collins who'd come up from Heathrow every every or Hounslow every every week to to see see bands. You know, you had the new faces saw the Who wanted to form a band, and you had Bowie and Bolan knocked around all the time as audience members. Yes, so you got all these people before they actually became musicians were in the audience and then inspired to to pick up an instrument so so that's that's a legacy to be proud of absolutely so when you change when it moved to sort of um the new venue in 64 march yeah. a great a great month actually i was born in march 64 but anyway <laughs> so you had um so you got a new a manager took over was this john gee was this a new business model as they call it in the world of organizational behavior no, he'd already been the he'd already been the um the the manager. Um, effectively, when the club started, you know, my dad had to be the uh and and, and my mum before they were married. They they would man the the club, and it it wasn't uh, every night of the week, so it built up to being a seven nights a week uh, club. And you'd have duty managers who would be responsible for for every, for different nights. So I guess it's only when a when a club matures and uh, and I guess it becomes a business that you almost think, well, can we then afford someone who's going to be a full time manager? Yes. So um, the the full time manager that would allow my and and I guess eventually I came along, so maybe they couldn't hang up in the in the club all the time. So yeah, you 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 appoint a manager to sort of be there and an assistant manager, and that ended up being quite a model because all, always. 
uh, the uh, when when a manager left, the assistant manager throughout the history of the club would then take over. So there was quite quite well planned successions actually through 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 the years in terms of someone becoming an assistant manager and then taking over. And and uh, Jack Jack Barry was John John G's assistant, and then when when John G, you know. I guess a bit like bands, managers also, you know, managers of clubs almost fall out of love with, they have a cohort of musicians and maybe yes. it's time for them to move, move on as well. I mean, ironically, John G was a, was a Frank Sinatra fan. So he was, he was famously liking big band swing rather than say all the, all the artists he, uh, he adopted, but uh, he didn't do too bad because uh, um, Jethro Tull even wrote, wrote a song uh, for him. Uh, named after him so um yeah is that they, uh, so a song for jeff their job was yeah yeah right i've got you yes well it was interesting because because up to then you know and you mentioned nick nick drake and he was produced by joe boyd and in so that sort of 66 67 period you we had the summer of love and there was those kind of events like the 14 hour technicolor dream at the Alley Pally, and then you had UFO Club and all the psychedelic world. How did the Marquis cope with that kind of particular period of psychedelic love and LSD and and all the smoking that went on with it? Did it cap? Did it sort of sort of surf that zeitgeist um, at the same time? Well, actually, before so um, in '62, uh, the um, yeah, in fact, the old Marquis hosted. Uh, Quite a lot of underground progressive uh, uh, what new directions were there, which which had Horowitz and uh, John Brown, and uh, which then led to the the sort of poetry readings at the Albert Hall, and you had um, you had spontaneous underground that was run at the the Marquee, um, where where Bowie and Bolan were were, were you know, regular attendees. This was in 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 sixty six, and actually at that at that spontaneous un- underground. Um, both the, the the two founders of, uh, of UFO Club um, and Pete Jenner, the Pink Floyd's manager, saw Floyd play for the first time. So their first ever gig was at that spontaneous underground uh, event at the at the Marquee, and this is this is this is where that relationship was created. That then led to to Floyd sort of playing for the Free School and uh, uh, and uh, doing the Technicolor. Oh, uh, right. So you would have been part of that IT magazine crowd with uh, Barry Miles and Hoppy Hopkins. and uh, Barry like... Miles and Hoppy Hopkins, yeah, they're actually, um, you know, they're, they're where they first saw the Floyd play was at the Marquee. They were right. there that night. They were there that night. They My were God. there that night, as was Pete Jenner. So so that that's where that, that combination came together that then created that uh, that underground movement. Blimey, that is amazing, isn't it? I love, I love the '60s narrative of kind of how psychedelic and the summer of love happened, and then by the the late '60s, you know, we had the death of Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and also the year before Brian Jones, and the '60s ended on a bit of a downer. So how did? Because with a lot of musicians, they have that period where they're right on it, and then the next period comes along. They've had a couple of months off, and then suddenly there's a whole new wave of scene. How did the marquee then straddle into the '70s? Because obviously the '60s ends on a bit of a downer you also had altamont you know the charles manson murders and the beatles break up so this sort of the 70s come along and um yes you had bowie who had played a few times in one of his many kind of bands so so how did the the marquee then sort of you know um embrace the glam and heavy rock period well if i could just pick up on the bowie story so more than a few times so uh 
Bowie actually, you know, it's very hard to realise that it took him eight years of slogging away before he 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 got discovered. Uh, and during that time, he'd uh, he was in eight different bands, all of which appeared at the marquee. So and he paid, you know, over 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 thirty times. He he got two of his managers signed him playing at the marquee, and um, he paid his first ever gig as David Bowie uh, at the club, and in fact his last ever gig as Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust. So actually the Bowie connection is uh, is is really strong. Um, and in fact, you know, back to the marquee being a a, a temple of many different uh, religions. Probably out those eight bands, there were five or six very different sounds that. <laughs> He played um, at the club, so uh, yeah, Bowie was a bit of a chameleon, and 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 so was so so was the club. But yes. yeah, there's always new, there's always new talent and new people wanting to burst burst through. So, and ironically, even if even if um, even if they're saying there's something new, they everyone wanted to play at the place where Hendrix had famously played in front of all of those. Uh, uh, English musicians that were 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 standing in awe. Everyone wanted to play where you know Fleetwood Mac and Cream had played their first gigs, or the Rolling Stones got discovered. So it almost created its own its own sort of heritage, and it became the stepping stone that that everyone wanted to to play because of what had gone beforehand, and and probably slightly less romantically, it became the because it was in the middle of Soho, and it and it and it it was seen as a as as a welcoming place. All of the journalists and all of the A and R men and and all the record labels were there every night, spotting talent and drinking. So you knew if if you played a good set there, you were highly likely to get a write up in right. the enemy or the melody maker, or you were likely to get signed. It wasn't because it was a beautifully looking place; it was because of the community and the the who might be in the audience. It meant that you it was more important to do well there than the than any anywhere else yes and it was it because my geography is not that good is it and was it close to sort of recording studios and record not record shop instrument shops as well musical instrument shops was it sort of all in that kind of vicinity i know there's been yes. several people who've been writing books on literally streets in london and the importance of <laughs> things well De Den denmark street our, our public the publisher paradise road right published the book have just just published a book on denmark street denmark street was literally up a stone's throw away from uh, Wardour Street, and very close also was um, Trident Studios. So yeah, it was it was almost like a Bermuda Triangle, right? Of, of you know popular culture and um, rock culture. Yeah. Yeah. So you would you would you would have so 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 Queen famously you know play two gigs to uh, well, again it's always it's always I always say to people well who do you think was had God given talent and 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 would would easily get signed and you know anyone who first saw them would think they're geniuses and most people will say Elton John, uh, Queen, um, or David Bowie, and, and all of them had a huge amounts of struggles. So many, many of them were were in the marquee <laughs> to actually someone to take a take a chance on them. And, and Queen would record at Trident Studios just around the corner, but they had three showcase gigs at the marquee where they invited the great and the good of the the all the record labels, um, and. No one wanted to pick them up. They eventually got signed, actually, by by the US label from a showcase gig at the Marquee before UK. Um, and it's it's fascinating to see that it gives us hope, all of us hope, doesn't it? That even these people we think, you know, they could walk on water from an early age, re really had to battle hard or get that luck and timing right.
Yes, their apprenticeship. I mean, I was always, a, my first single, my first love was David Bowie. So I was always fascinated with his 60s period of sort of like all these kind of slightly mediocre attempts, which, you know, you can't really hear much going on, which is very special. And I often find it boggling that he was recording some of that material at the same time that you had you know, all these bands from the UK and America. And just the idea that David Bowie would produce this record that you thought, God, if that was a toss up between, you know, The Doors, Hendrix, Morris, you know, um, The Beatles, the you know, Kinks, anyway, all those bands. And this really... Yeah, hopeless... you think, just, yeah, I'm, I'm a big Bowie fan. I'm a, I'm a huge Bowie geek as well. And, and if you if you listen to sort of Uncle Arthur and um, Love You Till Tuesday, you, you think, how can this guy go on in a few years to, to do low? You know, yes, it's. it's I, I quite like the Laughing Gnome though, terrible. and that that, 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 that was released uh, on the on the day he appeared at the uh, at the Marquee. He also met Mick Ronson at the at the club. Um, yes, and uh, they they jammed together, and uh, within within a week, he was on the appearing as a as a glam rocker. Um, again, uh, for for a fundraiser linked to Hoppy Hopkins and uh, and Barry Barry Miles. Um, <laughs> At the Roundhouse, so, so did did Tony DeFreeze, was he on the scene at that stage at the Marquee? Was he sort of around this, you know, the Bowie period of, that you mentioned at the late 60s and early 70s? He, he was around. They, they signed Tony DeFreeze signed him just at the end of his uh his stint at the at the Marquee. So so he'd gone through Ken Pitt and a, a few other other managers. Um I, and I guess in some ways the Marquee story is always uh, once they get the right management, they they have a, the right number of uh, I guess experience under their belts. Um, you know they won't necessarily ever play the club again because it's the launch pad, not not the landing pad. Um, but you know Bowie had had you know a, a, a lot of love for the club. He, he fronted a, a documentary we did on the, the 30, 30 years. Uh, pin up, you know, pin ups. His album was. Uh, you know, on the back he writes, it was a tribute to all the acts he saw at the at the Marquee Club, and of course he returned to um to kill Ziggy Stardust at, for for American television special at the at the club. So so he did come back a few times. Yes, absolutely. And then as the as when John Gee leaves, what who takes his place then to sort of pit, pick up the baton during the seventies? So it was Jack. It was Jack Barry who was who was the assistant manager. Um, and in, in many ways, Jack Jack is uh, yeah, yeah, instrumental in 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 the success we got with with prog rock. He 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 sort of personally bankrolled uh, yes before they became uh, became famous, and uh, you know was smart enough to 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 take the the marquee through that whole seventies period with the with the you know status quo etc. Um, famously, the Sex Pistols who got banned on their first ever appearance. Um, the whole summer heat wave of 76 when acdc broke through and and broke broke records at the at the club so i mean what i like is if whether it's the 50s 60s 70s or 80s you can find some fascinating stories of of artists that uh that that broke through yes absolutely because what's the the other club that's oh the roxy that comes along in 76 so you always got these other sort of scenes and other clubs so Luckily for the marquee, it was kind of smart enough to sort of embrace other types of music other than prog rock and you know light and heavy metal, didn't it? So obviously, how did how did you you know people like your dad sort of cope with this sort of onset of punk? Did he did he feel a little bit like mm, this is quite interesting? 
Well, my dad always said his his main trick was because um, everyone always said, "Well, how do you how did you um, you know spot the next thing?" Well, he said, "Well, quite often I would just uh, ask the uh, cloakroom attendant what what were people saying when they were collecting their coats at the end of the night, and were they were they saying they'd come back to see these guys again or not?" Um, and, and the cloakroom attendant was would tell him which bands to book or not in the in the future, or he'd pass it on to uh, to the the managers. Um, by the way, Banana Rama were cocoon attendants at one stage at the club, but they never actually got on, never got on the stage. Yes, uh, to play it, play a gig. So yeah, I think it's being humble enough to um, to to listen to 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 what the audience are telling you, and and also we would deliberately um, encourage interval acts and support acts, and uh, you know, in some ways. Part of the obligation of the main main act would be to find a support act. So, uh, you know, you're 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 getting a lot of people's wisdom to get the right people an opportunity. And of course, it's whether they can grab that opportunity. I mean, the thing I like about the marquee, and it, it's very hard for clubs nowadays, is we had these residencies. So, famously, the Who's was the was the was the was the famous residency when they started off. Really, hardly anyone knew them. And they played 22 weeks solidly. Not only did they um, refine their sound, and it's almost like a keep fit gym for, for a band because when they know they've got to come back and there's a discerning audience and they've got to learn new tunes and they've got to beat last week's um, showing, it doesn't half tighten them up as a as a, as a, as a band. And they also get to know, e- know each other and um, in, fo- in some ways develop their sound. So you, you had... Keith Emerson and the Nice, who started off as a classic uh, sort of R&B covers band, by the time they started their residency, and by the end, they've developed a, a whole new, unique sort of prog rock sound. With um, Lemmy, who was their roadie, ended up uh, giving Keith, Keith Emerson one of his one of his daggers that he would then use to sort of play the piano on and. Uh, Yes. Uh, all that showmanship. So so this this whole progression of having to come back every week and top what you did the last week really really was was I think invaluable to artists. Yes. Well actually it's interesting because I remember doing an interview with dear old JJ French from Twisted Sister who said that you know he would he won't he won't see a band until they played something like 500 shows because he said you just won't be good and twisted yeah. sister spent the entire 70s being rejected but playing solidly around new york until they got managed to get signed in the 80s and then became that huge band but it's interesting as well because you mentioned ACD. They, they played the reading and the uh the marquee uh as well um was that the Reading one where Lemmy goes and says look give them a break i know they they dress appallingly but they do sound good <laughs> Well, I, I interviewed Dee Snyder actually for the book, um, and he he did not enjoy um, his his marquee experience, uh, to put it mildly. Um, the the thing with the marquee, because it was such a a, a small room and it, it was often rammed, particularly in the summer months. You know, sweat was literally pouring off the walls and the ceiling. It got so so hot. I mean, there's this famous story of Bob Geldof from the Boomtown Rats play there of him collapsing on stage. And there's stories of, you know, guitars sort of bending <laughs> almost uh, and going out of tune because 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 of the heat. Um, Dee Snyder told me that that it was so hot there that that, that he had panic. He had a panic attack. Right. Uh, 
and it lasted for years. He said that he would be in, in, a, in a stadium in Bangkok or Tokyo or somewhere, and he, if he got really hot, he'd have a panic attack because he went back went back to the marquee. That, that, that horrible thing, you know. And he had to he had to sort of get huge fans to sort of fan him down. So yes. no, he wasn't. He didn't have a great experience. He didn't have a great one. And then, famously, Mark Mark is the Mark Knopfler Dire Straits story of them when when they played their uh, short residency there, um, and it got very hot. On the on the first night, and and literally sweat was pouring into Knopfler's eyes. So the following following day, he turned up with a with a tennis headband, and it became his trademark. It became his trademark, which um, <laughs> looks hideous forty years it, later. Yes, but... <laughs> I mean, he looks like uh, Olivia Newton John, doesn't he? In, in, yes, in that meet John McEnroe. But the, but the but interesting because you mentioned there about ACDC and it, what was quite and then I mentioned Twisted Sister, but bands used to just play an awful lot, didn't they? Because I'd watched a documentary on ACDC quite recently, and I just couldn't believe how many years they had been plugging away, literally playing every little town venue around the UK and around America before they sort of hit it big. So it was interesting that the club scene was so important and it didn't have to be a huge club as well. It was just literally people doing their art. And um, yes, so in those days, the live circuit for, for clubs was huge, wasn't it? I mean, I mean, the story I liked a little bit earlier was the, it was, uh, the Jethro Tull story where where they, they would play, um, try and get on at the marquee every different every week. Um but so that they didn't get rejected, they would come up with a new name. So they had about 15 different names. And and I guess they never quite liked the name Jethro Tull. They didn't actually know what it meant. But uh, but it's the name that stuck because that's that's when they became successful. Uh, and they they played at the, the club. And my dad, as we said, really wanted to sort of give people a ladder and opportunity. So the idea was that you would play support at the club. Then you hopefully would graduate to headline. You might want to record a, an album at the Marquee Studios, which we should touch on. That's a whole other story, the uh, the story of the studios, uh, rich heritage there. And then they would perhaps go and play at the um, at the festivals. And of course, at the festivals, you would, both with recording an album or a single and, and appearing at the festivals, you've suddenly got a much bigger audience you can uh, appeal to. And um, Jethro Tull, obviously had built their following at the, at the marquee and around the country um, and then put them on at the festival that year, the festival was at, at Sunbury and they, they, they appeared and none of the journalists or anyone particularly knew who they were, but then there were, there were, they mobilized a huge fan base from just those small club gigs to actually turn up to the festival. And, um, they got signed on the back of just the number of fans that were there and they, they actually played a very good set as well. Uh, and, and, you know, they go, they're on their records and saying that that's, that's when the Jethro Tull story really, really kicked off. So you could mobilize a, a team and uh, just playing local gigs. I mean, the who's the other classic on this, this, and again, very smart managers. They, they, they developed that iconic poster, you know, R and B maximum R and B at the marquee with uh, yes. unusually not the lead singer, but, Pete Townsend, that black and white um, picture, and um, they—it uh, was the first form of sort of guerrilla marketing technique. They—they—they they, uh, they, they modelled themselves on Sherlock Holmes, and uh, who he had these thousand faces across London, sort of tramps who would spy on what was going on. They thought we could do the same thing, and let's try and mobilise every mod we know in in North London, and let let's try and get anyone by any means possible to come to a. A, a gig at the marquee even if they've never heard of the who 
And so they mobilize this, these foot soldiers to, and using this amazing poster to get, get people into the, into the club. Yes. There's another example, of course, is, is Marillion, who would mobilise their fans from Ellsbury to come down to the marquee shows. And, that, and, and you know, it built up built up a buzz. That's the whole point, isn't it? You, you get your core audience in and that creates a buzz and you get more people in and, and, you, and you create a scene, I guess. Yes, and eventually the record label thinks, yes, we need to buy them. So just before we go to the studio, can we just mention uh, dear old Lemmy, because we have already and we love Lemmy, don't we? Being the roadie for Hendrix and various people and then Hawkwind and then Motorhead. So he's in he's now in Motorhead, isn't he? And it's not going well. And the the uh, well, Fast Eddie and Filthy Taylor decide that's it. But they decide, is it to play one more gig, and then that was going to be it. And this and was this going to be at the Marquee? Yes, a final farewell gig. Uh, Thin Lizzy did the same, by the way. So so we're responsible for saving you know two two of these these bands that were going to give it give up. Um, and I, I guess Lemmy was smart enough to uh, make sure the right people were invited that night and. Um, he he managed to through through a little bit of smart negotiation managed to 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 get to get someone to record record them uh, and uh get a, get an album out so, and and once they had that out they decided well maybe we just give it a bit more of a get more of a go yes and it's that was amazing motorhead. how many of those artists it's sorry it's, yeah and that was motorhead it's amazing how many artists were, were close to quitting i mean um genesis were in the in the in their transit van at the back of the marquee thinking that they were they were not going to go in they, they were not going to play another gig after after you know one of the band had a bit of stage fright and it's quite fragile how these you know decisions go that you you know you you think just one other decision and maybe they they wouldn't have become the artists they they became but yes we uh we saved motorhead and uh, let me repaid us by drinking the bar dry and hogging the pinball machine for for the rest of his life Yes, no, it's, 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 someone's got to do it, so that's good old Lemmy. <laughs> then, but the studios, so this is always going to be an interesting one, because I know this was one of the reasons for the Woodstock Festival. They wanted to finance a recording studio. And um, so, yes, did you, which is probably going to be one of those disasters, isn't it? But how did the, the studio go over the marquee? Well, again, a, a real character. My dad loved uh, loved sort of people who were trying to do something different. Uh, and... Um, a, a real character came and said, "Well, you know, at the back of the, I can record a few, a few artists, and uh, in fact, recorded that um, guy called Philip Wood. He recorded the that Five Live Yardbirds album, um, and uh, then started to try and build a build a desk and a recording studio at the back of the marquee. And almost while it was being built, um, its first recording session created a monster worldwide hit. Amazingly." By the Moody Blues co- called Go Now, um, which also had the first ever sort of pop video recorded at, at the back of the club, which was the template for Bohemian Rhapsody a, a few years later. So it's, it's amazing what what things can happen. So, so yeah, yeah, Go Now was recorded at the at the club. Um, very basic, very basic uh, facilities at the time. But off that off that success, the 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 the. the Studio got stronger and stronger, but as you said, there were a lot of studios around um, Soho, etc. But then, quite a bit of investment in in um, twenty four track desks, um, and yeah, quite a proud legacy of, of recordings that were that were done there. Would you believe one of Monty Monty Python's first sort of big big comedy album that that broke them in the states was recorded at the 
the studios. Um, Chelsea's Blue is the Colour football song was recorded there. Uh, the Wombles, um, the Mike Bat recorded a lot of a lot of stuff there. You've got a lot of the, the, the 70s and 80s recording there. So Toya recorded a lot of her albums, Marillion, which we've we've touched yes. on. Baker Street, that that amazing album was recorded there. Don't Go Breaking My Heart, Elton John was mixed mixed at the studios. But probably the story that, that Robert and I liked the most, and we 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 fought to keep it in the book because a lot of a lot of stuff had to go out of the book because we had so much content was um the birth of Stock Aitken and Mortimer was was down to Marquee Studios. Fantastic. Blimey, that's amazing. Did you have any particular producer who used the studio that um was around at that time? Gus Gus uh, yeah. Dudgeon, I think Gus Dudgeon. is the biggest name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Gus Dudgeon used it a lot. Um, you know, we, we talked about Stock Aitken and Waterman. Um and some of the engineers we had, so Philip Harding, who then went off with with Stock Aiken and Waterman to create the the hit, hit factory. Um, uh, Jonathan King um, used it quite a lot. You actually, yes. had, um, the Beatles actually recorded a 1965 Christmas message to their uh, their fan club uh, at at the studios, and there's some great pictures of it uh, with Mick Jagger dropped in, um, but they never released it. They didn't think it they were funny or witty enough. So it was one of those oddities that that never got got released. Yes. So as we go into my favourite decade, the eighties, what was the and the state of music kind of changes again? So we had the punk, post punk period, and then we were getting into the world of indie pop. But they had been the Blitz Kids, hadn't they? New Romantics, yeah. Sade, the Sound of, and then we had you know Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran, and then as as that progressed, we had sort of the Smiths. From 83 to 87, this indie sound. How does the club then sort of navigate this next period? Well, you'd had the new wave that that that, that was pretty strong at the at the club. And uh obviously the police, um Andy Summers met met the other two band members at the club and joined them on, on stage. And uh this was their first sort of proper headlining um gig so 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 because sting and stuart copeland had been backing singers or the backing band for uh cherry Van no ava cherry hadn't hadn't they sort of they'd been in that kind of combo and i think stuart had been in some sort of folk prog band which was probably yeah. something like i'm going to say renaissance but it probably wasn't was it it was probably um oh. but what what they what they'd done is because they, they were never i guess i guess while they were seen as part of the punk and new wave movement they were quite quite hungry so so they played a lot of gigs being the standby for when when the uh, the new wave or the punk act didn't turn up yes. so they, they got a lot of practice filling in um but but the, the and and they were for the police were originally a four piece um and uh, but they but they were quite proud that the almost the, the time they played the marquee was the first gig they felt it was actually them officially headlining it and it was their own audience listening to them play um and obviously by getting Andy Summers, who was a consummate musician at the time, yes. joining them, that's when it's almost formed that power trio, which I guess the Marquis got a bit of a, uh, a heritage with, with obviously the Cream and the Hendrix connection and Buddy Guy before before them in, inspiring uh, um, that yes. power trio. So, so got quite a nice uh, quite a nice history on power trios. But anyway, we're meant to be talking about the eighties, aren't we? So, uh, but some of that legacy meant, you know, the Jam were 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 very happy to to almost get. They were signed at the dressing room of the Marquee by by Polydor, because it was the Who's uh, record label. 
Duran Duran played their first London gig at, at the, the Marquee. Pretenders got signed there. You had obviously the, the Thompson Twins, uh, Bell Stars, Toya. Um, so you, you had Chubway Army, and uh, we got a lovely photo of um, uh, of a very a very young Gary Newman actually playing like fourth on the bill, waiting waiting to go on um, in in the early days. Uh, I think you've you've also got the. Uh, Big American names coming down, haven't you, as well? People like R.E.M. playing very early gigs. Right. Early yeah, their yeah. first the first European uh, gig. Um, yeah. Um, Brian Adams. The, the the book the book opens the, with uh, the story of Guns N' Roses, who played their first ever gig outside of the United States at the Marquee. Uh, and Metallica have played their first UK gig. Yes, um, at the marquee as well. So he had a lot of big names of the eighties from the American America band. Because of course, they, the marquee it's not wasn't just British bands. It's, uh, young young British bands been hungry to play the marquee. It had by by then it had the, an international resonance as well. U two uh, in their early days before their first album came out played. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I, I, I there's a lovely bit on because you've sort of the book's been beautifully put together. So there's that little bit kind of goth. So you've got all the the sort of the goth bands from the sort of the 80s from sort of people like the the March Violets to the Fields of the Nephilim and the um the Bolshoi who aren't really goth but you know they're close enough. Bauhaus Bauhaus played once didn't they? They 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 didn't really make an impact but they they did play there. They played the, they did play one gig. Yeah. Yes. I mean there was a great gig that, that you know it'd be great to to be there but um the the cure could pick their support act for for a residency they had and uh they had Joy Division supporting them. So uh that would have been an interesting night to have a uh, Joy Division and the Cure on. God, that would have been probably for two pound and fifty p. You probably cringe when you see the prices of these things compared to <laughs> what it would yeah. be like to um, put a band on now, which is well, one, 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 one. Somebody I got because I got in touch with a few people who were sort of punters, you know, to get memories of of, of gigs they've been to, and uh, sadly not enough of that went into the book because there was just so much material. Um, but but somebody sent sent me a, a they scanned a, a ticket that they had uh, which was uh, sort of hand drawn with a bar and it was the jam and it was uh, admission fifty p. Yes, fifty p get you today, not a lot. But then you got you uh, got you a night to see the the jam. It is some, some of those other a bloody jar of jam now, would it fifty p? Yeah. I mean, some of those other stories that I, I like, Robert, that 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 you can tell about almost like the the secret gigs. So, um, you know, could you get could could you get wind of uh, one of these gigs under an assumed name and get to see one of these artists that was returning to the to the club? And there, there's some great stories about sort of the genesis, the genesis secret gig. I don't know if you want to pick up that one, Robert. Oh yes. Well, yeah, yeah, and this is this is the thing that Nick was saying before when a band became too big to play the marquee, but some of them did come back. I think because um, I think I think bands are always interested in their roots, aren't they, and where they started? So and it, it's sort of giving something back as well. And also, when you're playing these huge Madison Square Garden and the the Budokan, it's nice to sort of get back to a small venue and, and actually see you know the the people's faces that you're playing to so some some of the bands came back um genesis uh came back uh the police is a good one because the, th the whole point of a, a secret gig is that everybody should know about it you know it can't be secret otherwise no literally no one will turn up so you've sort of got to give very heavy clues yes. as to who it is with the genesis i think the the, a couple of hours before the gig happened, all these posters went up in in the West End for a band called what what was it something the Garden Wall that was it, 
and uh, which I think was a, an early name of the band when when they were very in their early days. That was the, one of their one of their names. So people cottoned on to that immediately, and the place was absolutely rammed. And I interviewed somebody who was in a band who turned up one afternoon at the marquee just to put some posters out because their gig was coming up in a few days and they wanted to put some posters out. And they, the manager said, do you want to come in? There's a secret gig going on. And he, and he said, OK. And he, he walked in and there's literally like, three people and a doll because they hadn't they hadn't advertised it. You know, the, the point of a secret <laughs> gig, as I say, is that everybody <laughs> should know. And the same thing happened with the police. The, when the police played a secret gig there, again, no, hardly anyone turned up. And um, I think it was... Um, the manager, the, the the band's manager, and and somebody from the marquee went out into into Wardour Street, trying to you know passes by, saying, "Did you fancy going in to watch to see the police?" And I don't <laughs> think anybody believed them. So so don't, yeah yeah sure about yeah of course. Um, so they, no, they, so that was a disaster. Yes, so. that was that was a bit tricky. That was probably Miles, wasn't it? Anyway, look. It was, so, yes, that's right. It was Miles. Yeah, yeah. Miles went out saying, "Look, we've got nobody here." We got, and he, yeah, he, he sort of went out into the street and sort of literally grabbing people off the street to come and. So and there's, the, there's some tales of romance as well, um, David. So, um, would you believe Sharon first met Ozzy Osbourne at the uh, at the club? So uh, we we were responsible for that uh, that that relationship. Beautiful. Any any other any other romance that happened there that's um, ended in marriage and. A life together. Well, I suppose it's, it's 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 Nick's mom and dad, really, isn't it? I guess. It's, it's, yeah, it's I guess. One. I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't know if they'd be they they'd like to be compared to Sharon and Ozzy, but yes, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. My mum, yes. my mum worked at the the club, um, and then uh, then they got married. I guess. Yep, that's how the romance. So then, as as we get towards the the latter part of the eighties, this is where Harold decides that he's going to sell it in. Is it eighty eight or eighty seven? Six decided to sell it, but uh, takes a while to actually um, happen. And that was to Rod Stewart's manager. Um, and it was effectively the lease was up. So so dad had to choose whether we were going to become sort of property developers and try and buy the whole building. I mean, we did have obviously the, the, the ground floor and, and all the offices in the first floor as well. Um, but he decided it that's not his interest actually it would have been a good idea seeing what happened to london prices and they they became manhattan, manhattan lofter apartments so uh, maybe not the the right financial move but dad didn't really have any interest in that so um and he felt it was you know it was a young man's game and obviously we we still kept the the festivals for a few years but yes so uh we sold the club and about a year a year later it you know we transitioned away and then it moved to um a new a new a new uh, a new place on Charing Cross Road. Yes. So your dad kept in in the sort of the music world. Yes and uh, in, indeed we still have you know because there was a whole marquee group of companies and we we I still chair one which is called Marquee Entech uh which is the the UK's longest running sound and lighting company that supports you know tours and festivals and uh, uh we've just come back on a Gorillaz World Tour um because again we had to problem solve. So when we were running these festivals, they didn't have amplified, loud amplified sound. They didn't really have the sort of light shows that you have now. We were the first people ever to use wristbands, um, portable toilets, uh, lasers, uh, two stages. So all of these things we sort of take as granted as sort of festival culture. I'm quite proud to say that, that they were things, they were problems that dad had to solve. Yes. Then, then there were industries and supply chains built around them. 
Yes. So just the so this is all the Reading the Reading Festival that you were sort of all part of. So what were the years that your dad was particularly involved in that? Well, we we started it. So we started it. It started in, in Richmond in sixty one, uh, and uh, uh, our last our last one was um, Nirvana's last show. So uh, which is one of the gigs I'll never forget in my life. Um, so that was ninety ninety two. Blimey, that was the one when he came on in a wheelchair, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. Blimey. Yeah. And Reading, and Reading, definitely. How did you sort of feel compared to things like the Stonehenge festivals? And obviously, Glastonbury was the very early seventies. Then it picked up again in the the late night, uh, the late seventies. And I mean, Reading was quite it was quite a um, an amazing space, wasn't it? And very heavy rock. Well, only for a period it was heavy rock. I mean, don't forget, we, we started the festivals 10 years before Glastonbury. So, so um, you know, we've been doing it quite a long time. And we only settled in, we, we got, festivals weren't seen as part of the mainstream. So so we we got shunted around quite a few different places when people started to complain about, um, about them. So uh, we did a tour of quite a few race courses, actually, at, at the times, and then ended up in Reading in 71. Uh, and at that time, Reading was seen almost as a, certainly as a graveyard for any musical artists. Um, but I had a go for a year. Uh, the weather was atrocious. It rained all the time. The the site actually wasn't the one that was proposed, but but Dad had to look around and said, actually, that's that's a better site than the one that the council were planning to, to use. Um, the, the 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 police were very heavy-handed and there was there was quite a lot of friction with the police so we thought oh no we're going to be on our way again in 72 and um what now 40 50 years later still there yes absolutely and how did because i know michael eva's had a lot of problems with security the travelers and all sorts of bits and pieces and the neighbors as well how did your dad sort of cope with those kind of elements of bikers and hell's angels and people like that had quite a lot of trouble with the uh, Hell's Angels actually for for a, a, a few a few a few years. And funny enough, I was invited uh, to Broadcasting House to um, when when Dad sort of passed away. Uh, and I'm so pleased that you know, Robert and I got that time to sort of capture capture all his memories um, before we passed away. And that was 2017. I got invited to go on that program called The Last Word, where where you you, you talk you know they they pay homage to the people who've sadly passed away and. Uh, the producer came to collect me from, I don't know if I've told you this, but I think I have, but he came to collect me from the um, reception and you, we're walking as we go up and he said, I knew, I knew, your, I knew your dad and I actually worked at the uh, the first and second uh, Reading festivals and it was the most frightening moment of my life because I was stuck on security um, and at the time they just had almost a canvas um sort of tented screen to keep people out and i was just doing a patrol and this huge knife came through the canvas and slit it slit it open and these five hell's angels came came through and i and i i didn't know what to do whether i was meant to suddenly say to them stop or uh, or, or just turn a blind eye um and thankfully he actually turned a blind eye which is probably the right the right thing but, but um yeah we 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 had to create our own security force so the police were never really interested and uh and actually by showing them they weren't welcome and certainly not letting them run security as we know that doesn't end well um we we saw them off after a few a few years but the Windsor trap chapter did cause us a little bit of trouble for a few years 
Right. God, that's that is quite an amazing thing. Yes. And you know, it's kind of so when your dad sort of retired, did he then just keep an interest in music and um and the sort of what was going on in in the sort of like the club scene and festival scene? I mean, was he kind of amazed when he saw place, you know, how festivals had grown from such a few to sort of this establishment that now is on sort of television? I think that's 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 what he was stunned by. The the fact that you had all these people in suits and corporates actually sponsoring these festivals and what a big business it, because it, it had been such a, such a struggle for him and no one had, you know, no one, there wasn't a thing as such as festival culture. And, um, you know, so I think he was, he was very pleased that it, that it, that, you know, his role in actually establishing, establishing that, but wished it might've been a little bit easier <laughs> for him at the time. Yes. Um, and you had these iconic festivals that, that pretty much went boom and bust. So dad never wanted, a bit like the club, he never wanted to have the biggest or showiest club. He just wanted to be the most, the fairest, the most professional and and the one that supported upcoming artists. And um, I guess as a trained accountant, he sort of wanted to build things for the long term. So yes. the, 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 the Reading was, there's a number of reviews that said, you know, that these 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 amazing events came and went whether it was the Isle of Wight festivals or Woodstock or a few of the Glastonbury's and and they would then self-implode uh due to sort of chaos or lack of organizational greed whereas he was rightly proud that ours just kept on going and every year you knew there would be a festival and you knew that the marquee would be championing good good music so I think it's that consistency that that probably is one of the reasons we can say it's the greatest venue yes absolutely because it's quite interesting because i do love the festival culture because there was a little one in essex i believe wheelie they just put on one festival and they normally just had a little fate and bowling for the pig and and for some reason they had the most amazing three-day lineup and it just was a complete disaster because i think they only had sort of a couple of people on security so the whole place became a disaster and there was the other one which was was it bickenshaw as well which was one of those ones that um I don't know. He was a presenter, wasn't he? Who organised it? Had the Grateful Dead playing, and it was apparently a bit of a, a sort of it turned bad. So um, yes, your dad did very well not to avoid those kind of horrendous pitfalls of suddenly finding you've accidentally invited fifty thousand people to a weekend of music, but only two toilets. Yes, and we had to invent. You know, you know, we had our own hospitals on site. Uh, you know, we had number of babies that got born on site, etc. So you, you're built. You're basically building a, mil, a mini city or mini village that uh has to be built in three months and dismantled in two months and uh there's a great party for three days in the in the middle of it so i think that's that, that's something that you know yes had quite and, an indelible part and your dad being an accountant and, and I, that... I, I lived in a caravan for for most every summer i never had a summer holiday uh until uh, until we stopped doing the festivals, so um, oh, yeah, yeah quite, quite a big impact on my life as well. I would imagine your step count would have been a humor, you know, yeah. fantastic. It would have been yeah. off the scale. That's the main thing. That's probably why I kept you fit anyway, as you scurried around trying to avoid hell's angels. But the interesting thing is, well, just lastly, your dad being an accountant was that kind of essential for sort of the business and making sure that it all everything ran smoothly. Well, I think his interest, yeah, his passion was, yeah, to give give new artists a break uh, and to run the thing properly. And and um, uh, he would back quite a lot of characters, but he was he was relatively sensible. And I guess that 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 
enabled it to have its longevity. So he would never bet the farm on one particular uh, act or, or you know, he, he was all about, is it going to be run properly? Will it give the audience a good experience? Uh, how do I get a community of like-minded people, create a nice supportive culture? Uh, all these things are easy to say, really hard to, to do. Yes. Uh, but you can't keep something going for 30 years without doing those sort of things. No. And I do remember I did an interview with, what's this guy here? This guy who did the Roxy, this guy, Andrew. And, um, oh, yes. And um, and he you know, he spent some time in prison. I think his accountant was about, but his accountancy was a bit sort of not not up to scratch. So it's kind of important to get these things right, isn't it? Yes, they say. Yeah, and, uh, that would always tell tell because 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 we like to risk share with um with artists as well, certainly at the at the club. And um, so you would you would split the takings 50-50. So they would have an incentive to do some of the marketing themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And uh uh, yeah, as we said, we had a lot of American artists come and um, they were always quite bemused because I guess they were used to being ripped off. Right. Uh, and um, so they would never trust, uh, you know, our takings at the, uh, for the for the ticket. So certainly a lot of the American artists would put someone on the door with a clicker uh, to check and see how many people came in. And they, they would um, be bemused often when uh, at the end of the night they would get paid more than they thought because actually no one ever paid them more than they clickered in and actually they would often miss one or two people but but they would never they would never find that, that we shortchanged them in terms of how many people came came through the door and i guess that builds trust from managers and, and artists so so again goodwill that, that the people that want to put people on at the marquee or the or the festival Yes, a bit like Vegas and the skim, isn't it? I suppose that's where most people yeah. try to to do the skim, didn't they? But look, look, I think um, I'll let you go now. But thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And I do think the book is just brilliant. And I love the fact that you've got anything from We've Got a Fuzzbox to the most obscure prog rock band in, in one <laughs> publication. That is, there's not many books that can do that. So well, that, that, uh, sum, that sums up the club, doesn't it, really? What you just <laughs> said, it really does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, from Jethro Tull to We've Got a Fuzzbox, you know, Serious musicians <laughs> to people who could barely play, but still made a great sound. I think that's the important of that zeitgeist thing, though, isn't it? Yes. You know that yes. every generation that comes along, the the previous generation probably go, mm, these they, they can't do it, can they? They're not quite up to it. But it it's like, but well, that's not always the point, is it? It's it's just like a different scene and a different chapter, and that's the joy of music, isn't it? Well, actually, some of the the best stories I I like are the ones of the bands that never made it, who actually paid loads of times at the marquee. And they weren't necessarily better or worse. Actually, quite a lot of them were sometimes better than some of the bands that that did get signed and made it. And uh, you know, I think I think their story is as much uh, as, as as anyone's story about them at the marquee. Sadly, we couldn't feature too much, and our editor didn't necessarily want the stories about the artists that no one had ever heard of. But uh, you know, I think I think it's their story as well. Yes, well, absolutely. No, they, they, it's always interesting because those are the bands who probably still have the album. But when they they came along, it was probably that scene was finishing. I think there was a band called Clover that had Huey Lewis in. But by then, you know, they were, a new scene was coming along and people who looked like members of the Eagles and all that sort of floppy kind of look. And it was like, sorry, but punks just appeared. So bad timing. <laughs> Luck and timing is the most important thing any of us can have. Luck and time. They all say that. They say that. That is the truth. So, But work hard and just hope for the best. There you go. Yeah. 
There you go, amazingly wise, profound words from all of us. Anyway, a massive thank you, as always, to both Robert Sellers and also Nick Pendleton. Give me the time for that interview. If you want to know any more information, um, the book is titled Marquee, The Story of the World's Greatest Music Venue. And as I said, it's an amazing book, great publication, out on paradiseroad.co.uk publishing. Um, 320 pages with lots of pictures, lots of chat and uh, lots of interest and information. So there you go. And um, if you, if you, dear listener, want to get in touch with me, which is delightful, and uh, as long as it's positive, otherwise, why did you listen? Anyway, uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. I know the joy. Anyway, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Have a great week. Stay safe.